based upon a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, where the Apostle Paul writes, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. We looked at that promise from a twofold perspective as Paul expresses it. That now is the present promise, and that which is to come, the perpetual promise. And simply to summarize, the promise that now is has as its characteristics, as we noted last time, pardon. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And what flows naturally from that pardon is a peace that surpasses all understanding. The peace that Jesus gives, as he said to the apostles in John 14, 27, My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. But ironically, we also said persecution is a promise. Yes, we're promised persecution. 2 Timothy three twelve. There Paul wrote, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But as we looked at that promise of persecution, we looked at it from the perspective that the Christian, if persecuted because he is a Christian, can rejoice in that persecution, should rejoice in that persecution. Peter made that clear in 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16, as we noted last time. Jesus made it abundantly clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, he said, when that persecution comes for my sake. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are not the first to be persecuted, Jesus said, and certainly you won't be the last. And so we can actually take heart when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Remember the apostles in Acts 5, as we noted last time, left the presence of the Sanhedrin, having been beaten because of their preaching of the gospel of Christ. They were beaten, and upon their release, they counted it joy. They rejoiced that they were, that they were blessed to be able to suffer shame for His name. They rejoiced in that persecution. But as we looked at the promise that is to come... It could be summarized as we summarized it last time in one word, perfection. Absolute perfection, Revelation 21.4. God will wipe away every tear, no more pain, no sorrow, no death. The former things will have passed away. And we will have that beautiful, perfect state perpetually in heaven. But we briefly noted that in the verse preceding, verse 8 of 1 Timothy 4, Paul gave this admonition, exercise yourself toward godliness. That's what I want to key on in a follow-up to last week's lesson. Exercise, that's the word in the original from which we get our word gymnasium. It indicates a training, a training process with an athletic allusion, the allusion to athletic Training, And we know the rigors of those serious athletes as they engage in training for a particular event or to be the best they can be in a particular uh, sport. There has to be discipline. There has to be training. Well, the best training we can be involved in, according to Paul, is the training toward godliness. But notice that word toward. Toward. 
in the direction of, which indicates, as we alluded to briefly in our Bible class this morning, that we are in, we're in progress here. We're a work in progress, so to speak. Doesn't mean that we can't have the peace that surpasses understanding from the promise that now is. Doesn't mean that we can't have that peace based upon knowing that we are pardoned. No. But nonetheless, we have not arrived. And nonetheless, we understand and appreciate that we are to move toward an ultimate goal. That we are to increase in godliness. Godliness being piety, devotion, and reverence. To God. The Apostle Paul uses it, if I counted correctly, ten times in First and Second Timothy, but that word godliness he uses nine times, nine times in First Timothy alone. He obviously wanted to stress the importance of, of godliness, of being godlike. In other words, striving toward that kind of godlikeness piety and devotion and a reverential respect and devotion to God. And this verse, verse 7 of 1 Timothy 4, reminds us that godliness has to be promoted. That's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the promotion of godliness. How do we promote godliness? What does Paul, in the context of of 1 Timothy tell us about promoting godliness? Well, first of all, the passage we've already seen, 1 Timothy 4, 7, says it needs to be promoted, that we are to exercise ourselves to promoting godliness, to growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as, as Peter expressed it in 2 Peter three eighteen, Promoting godliness. You know, People talk about someone walking around as though he had his head in the clouds. Well, this depicts someone basically with his head in the clouds. A Christian should walk around with his head in the clouds, really, if you think about it, shouldn't he? His head should be in the clouds. In other words, we need to be, we need to be thinking toward heaven, the ultimate goal. We need to be promoting the godliness that will ultimately enable us to reach that goal. What are some keys to promoting godliness? Well, one key that I want to key on, if you will, today is contentment. Because the Apostle Paul tells us, now godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. Think about that. The power that is in that passage, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Well, Paul is not saying that godliness is not great gain, but he is, he is saying that godliness can be, can be interrupted or thwarted or hindered if we live our lives in a way to be discontented and, and are not content as the Christian should be. Contentment. How often do we think about how contented we are. The world, really, in effect, produces discontent if we buy into the world and worldly things too much, doesn't it? Contentment, that's a very pleasant word, isn't it? You remember the old carnation milk ad? Started back in 1907, 
seven. I wasn't born then, but it was still being used when I was later. And some of us are still old enough. We're old enough to remember. Carnation is the milk that comes from what? Contented cows. Contented cows. Have you ever stopped to think about that? What's the difference between a contented cow and a discontented cow? Have you ever obviously seen a discontented cow? Every cow I see out in the pasture looks perfectly contented to me. And what if you get milk? What if you happen to get milk from a discontented cow and you taste of that? What, can you tell the difference? Do you say immediately, whew, there was a lot of stress in this cow's life. I can tell that from this milk. I don't know that there's a difference, but that slogan worked beautifully for a man named Stuart who, who started the Carnation Company. And it had a very pleasant connotation, contentment. Now, I may not be able to tell by looking at a cow whether or not that cow is contented or discontented, but I can look at a Christian, I can look at a Christian's life and I can see whether or not that Christian is contented or discontented, can't you? Not by a a casual brief meeting, but you spend any time, you spend any time with someone who claims to be a Christian and you can see eventually whether or not there's true contentment there or whether there's too much of the world that has crept in and produced discontent. Paul obviously wants us to understand from this passage that godliness coupled with contentment is great gain. And that word contentment just simply means being, in effect, satisfied with what you have, understanding that as a Christian you have something that is far greater gain and far more profitable and far more important than anything and everything that this world could give you. And so, in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, remember the Apostle Paul here in another of his epistles says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Now, that's an, important, that's an important statement. I have learned. The Apostle Paul was an inspired man, but he still had to learn, didn't he? Contentment was not something that was bestowed upon him as a miraculous gift. He says that that's not the case here. He says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. How do you think Paul learned to be content? He learned to be content by applying what he himself, by inspiration, was preaching to others. But he had to apply that teaching to himself. And as he applied that teaching to himself, he was able to learn to be content. Are we able to learn to be content? He further elaborates, I know how to abound or I know how to be abased, rather, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need, and here's the key. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, yes, the Bible has a great deal to say about how important it is to learn to be content because when discontent becomes characteristic of our lives, Godliness will ultimately suffer. It has to. The Hebrews writer says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you.
shouldn't I be content knowing that God's not going to desert me, that the Lord is not going to leave me? A lot of things may happen in my life to disrupt, but if I let those disruptions produce discontent, then I have a problem, a problem that the Scripture warns against. And the warning here is a contrast between covetousness and contentment. Don't let covetousness creep in because when covetousness enters, contentment goes out the window because you become so consumed with getting more and more and more or being, as the old saying goes, like the Joneses or trying to keep up with the Joneses, etc. And so let your conduct Let your conduct be without covetousness. That says that not only what I think, but how I conduct myself should demonstrate, again, gets us back to whether or not I can see a contentment in Christians or a discontent. My conduct will will demonstrate it. By my conduct, I will display whether or not I am covetous or whether or not I am content. And if I understand fully the promise of God that He'll never leave me nor forsake me, that doesn't mean that He will shield me, as we've often talked about, from every discomfort. doesn't mean He will shield me from every challenge. There are people sitting right here this morning whom I know to be facing very serious challenges in various ways. Health reasons, loss of loved ones, so many things. And I'm fully aware of that and do not take for granted the extent nor the degree of that kind of challenge and suffering. But there's something that nothing can take from us, and that is the contentment that comes from promoting godliness with that contentment and understanding that as long as I'm applying myself to godlike living, then I can have a contentment that the external circumstances cannot take away. But I cannot get caught up in the mad rush, the rat race as it were, and the effort to be as much like those in the world as possible. After all, what about what we accumulate? Paul further elaborates by saying, for we brought nothing into this world and it's certain we can take, carry nothing out. You've heard the expression, there are no pockets in a shroud. There are no pockets in a shroud. In other words, you cannot take it with you. And so, having food and clothing, Paul says, with these, here's his word again, we shall be content. Is all of this saying that I shouldn't do the best I can at whatever vocation or avocation, I should say? My vocation is Christianity. My avocation is what I do to make a living in the case of, of many. But what should I do my best? Do I try, should I try to excel? Should I try to achieve? There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, properly understood and in proper perspective, Christianity demands that I be the best I can be in whatever noble and honorable avocation I have chosen. That gets us back to not being man-pleasers or serving with eye service, as Paul in his epistles tells us, but serving as to the Lord. And making sure that my employer knows that I'm going to be the best employee I can be because I serve the Lord, first of all. And so there's a beautiful balance and harmony between achievement and contentment. I can strive to achieve 
but within the bounds that God has placed, and I've got to keep everything in perspective so that I do not lose contentment because covetousness begins to creep in. That desire to be what? Rich. That's where he goes next in First Timothy 6, verse 9. Notice it. But those who desire to be rich, he does not say those who are rich are automatically condemned. Obviously, we have talked about biblical characters who were blessed with great riches. Abraham, the friend of God, the father of the faithful, as he is often called, was a rich man, but he was also a contented man as a follower of God. When it came time for Lot to separate from Abraham because of the land not uh, being able to, uh, to support both of them and their herdsmen and there was contention, what did Abraham say? I'm going to take the best part. You can have what's left over, Lot. No, he said, you take whatever you want. You take whatever you want. And you know, even in Esau, even in Esau who sold his birthright for, for a bowl of beans, basically, Later on, we see perhaps some progress being made in Esau's attitude toward materialism and perhaps a greater contentment that he had gained. Because you remember when there was about to be a reunion between Jacob and Esau after Jacob had supplanted his brother and and had stolen the blessing and the birthright and Esau initially wanted to kill Jacob and Jacob had to leave, leave the country in order to keep from being killed by Esau. Then later on in Genesis 33, there is about to be a reunion, and Jacob is pretty nervous about that whole thing, and he sends sends all these gifts uh, ahead of him uh, to to try to appease Esau, remember? And remember when they finally met up, Esau said to Jacob, what do you mean by all these droves, all these animals and so forth? What is all this about in effect? And Jacob said, this is for you. This is a gift for you. Well, the old Esau, I would have suspected, would have said, thank you very much. I've got a lot, but this will just add to the, <laughs> this will add to the treasury. But to his credit on this occasion, Esau said, brother, I've got, I've got all that I need. I don't need this. You just keep it. There's an expression of contentment in a man who initially sold his birthright and blessing for a bowl of beans. Perhaps some progress being made in the life there of Esau. Those who desire to be rich, not those who are rich, but who desire to be rich, fall into what? Temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which what? Drown men in destruction and perdition. No, no equivocation here about what Paul is saying about the danger of desire. The danger of desire to accumulate, the danger of desire leads to what? Drowning and destruction. Perdition. It'll destroy you. Why, Paul? Verse 10, 1 Timothy 6. For the love of money, not money, not material things. A lot of good things can be done with material things, as we often point out. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And here's what it's done to some people, Paul says, for which some have strayed from the faith. The faith, Christianity. Some have actually had their faith overthrown, have left the faith, Christianity, because of their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Even in the pursuit of wealth, many, in accumulating that wealth, have not only sacrificed their souls, 
but even their, even their happiness in this life. Because if you buy into that attitude, you can never have enough. You can never have enough. I like what the wise man in Proverbs wrote in a couple of places. In Proverbs 15, in verse 16, he wrote, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. Isn't that a great statement? Better is a little with the fear of the Lord. If I have a little, but I've got the fear of the Lord, reverence for God. In other words, if I have godliness as my, as my uppermost aim and goal and that for which I am or toward which I'm exercising myself, then if I don't have much of this world's goods, if I've got the fear of the Lord, that's better than great treasure with trouble. And then there's a similar Statement in Proverbs 16, the next chapter, verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. Better to have a little with righteousness characterizing my life than to have vast revenues without justice. The King James says revenues without right. Treasure without trouble and revenues without right. Treasures with trouble, is that what you want? Revenue without right, that's what some clamor for. What some covet after, that's what life is all about for so many people. But what about us? What did Paul say Timothy should be about? Here's where we get the formula. Here's where we get the formula. The American Standard Translation, I like here. But thou, O man of God... Flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of the faith. The faith. Hang on to Christianity. Lay hold on the life eternal, whereunto thou wast called, and didst confess the good confession in the sight of many witnesses. Paul is alluding to Timothy's conversion, which would have included his being baptized into Christ. As he made that confession, the confession to which Paul alludes next, that Jesus himself made as he stood before Pilate and confessed that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Today, the plan of salvation is the same as it was for Timothy. And that good confession includes a belief that leads us to repent of our sins, confess Jesus as the Christ, and be buried in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And once we've done those things, here's the formula to continue to exercise ourselves toward godliness. We find it in three words expressed here. The first is flee. Flee. That's what he says. Flee these things. Flee from the attitude that says, I need to devote myself to gaining more and more. Flee the attitude of covetousness. Recognize the great gain that godliness coupled with contentment brings. The second admonition is follow. Follow. That's how the American Standard renders it. The New King James says... Pursue, pursue. 
And the word clearly means not to amble along you know, slowly behind something and saying, well, I'm going to keep godliness in sight down here. And I'm going to kind of move slowly in that direction. No, it means to make haste. The word indicates to pursue actively and swiftly, to chase it, <laughs> to run after it, to follow it closely, to dedicate oneself to it. And does that mean a fight as well? Absolutely. It means that we are in a fight, but that fight does not have to destroy and must not destroy our contentment. But godliness involves an effort to flee that which is counterproductive to godliness, discontent, seek contentment, follow after what? These beautiful attributes that Paul mentions in this context. Much time could be spent, if time allowed, in dealing with each of them in some detail. What are they? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, as the New King James says, or meekness, as the King James says. And then verse 12 is our word fight. Fight the good fight of faith. We are in a battle. We are in a battle with Satan, and tragically at times we we are engaged in battle with our own brethren, who, as Tom mentioned in his prayer this morning, tragically depart from the faith and for whom we should pray that they might return to the fold. But even as we fight, we don't fight with a brashness or a harshness or a bitterness. We fight the good fight of the faith. And then notice he says in this verse also, verse 12, lay hold on eternal life gets us back to exercising ourselves toward godliness because as we do make that progress, as we, as we promote godliness, we're moving ultimately toward laying hold ultimately and finally upon eternal life. And doesn't the expression, the admonition, lay hold on eternal life, tell us that we have to do something in order to be saved eternally? And isn't that another one of the hundreds of passages that says once you're saved, you're not always saved? Otherwise, why would Paul ever say we need to lay hold on something we already have and that cannot be taken away from us? Obviously, we can forfeit the promise of eternal life. We can forfeit the perpetual side of that promise we looked at last week. By what? By failing to promote the godliness that ultimately will ensure that we have that eternal life. And contentment is a key, key element. Godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. Isn't that ironic that so many people are seeking great gain and have no concern whatsoever for godliness? And yet, the really great gain comes from pursuing godliness, coupling it with contentment. And where is that perfect contentment found? It's expressed in one of the most familiar texts in all of the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
makes me to lie down in green pastures, leads me beside the still waters. That beautiful psalm really embodies the perfect contentment that should be characteristic of every child of God. And so if I live in a pup tent, if I live in a pup tent, I can consider the majesty of God, the protection of God, the contentment that I can have by being one who is a child of God in the active pursuit of godliness, coupled with a contentment because I know the Lord will never leave me nor forsake me. Let me ask you this morning, does that contentment characterize you? Can you say that you have that contentment, that peace, perfect peace about which we have sung so often? It cannot be yours until Christ is yours. And Christ cannot be yours until you make him yours by a belief in him that leads you to repent of your sins, confess him, and to be buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. He who believes and is baptized, Jesus said, will be saved. Believe that I am he or die in your sins. Repent or perish. Confess me, I'll confess you. He's made it so abundantly clear in that simple but beautiful and essential plan. A plan for peace. A plan that enables us to be forgiven and to rise from a watery grave cleansed by the blood of Christ with a new pursuit, with the happy pursuit of greater godliness as we exercise ourselves toward that godliness that will enable us to one day reach the goal. If you're not there today, we plead with you to be there before you leave here this morning by obeying the gospel. If you've been there and have known that peace and have known that contentment, but you also know that things have crowded that contentment from your life and that your life no longer reflects the contentment that others should be able to see in you and that sin has entered your life in a way that needs to be repented of in a public way, then we plead with you to come home in that same way and leave here again with the contentment that you once had as we stand to sing. Will you come?